0: Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Jennifer Kasten and Dr. Todd Parker. And we're bringing you a special public edition, uh, public and healthcare edition of the ASAP Frontline podcast. And we felt like it was important because there has been a ton of stuff coming out recently. And if you're on the healthcare side of things, you understand because people have probably been sharing, with, sharing it with you a lot to get your thoughts on it. But the idea of a lot of these videos that have been posted online and the two main ones we're talking about are the uh, Bakersfield physicians uh, that had their thoughts on COVID and then the, um, and then the Plandemic, uh post with uh, Dr. Mikovic. I don't know if that said it right, but whatever. Mikovic. Mikovic?
1: Mikovic. Yeah.
0: Mikovic. Mm-hmm. We'll go with it. I like it. And we're going to um, we're going to break those down and uh, get an idea. The reason I brought Dr. Parker and Dr. Caston on board is they both have done deep dives into those videos. And I bet you, I, I bet you can guess which one uh, did the pandemic one uh, based on the one actually knowing her last name. And um, and we're going to break those down, get a summary, and we're going to pass on some tips to you. On things to look for online, we've actually posted some on the Stanton MD page on things to look for that it may be clickbait, overall false, or at least worth a deeper dive as opposed to just sharing it as gospel truth. And so, uh, Dr. Kasten, Dr. Parker, thanks for joining us. And we'll start off by uh, getting a little background on each of you, darting, uh, starting with Dr. Kasten. Tell us a little bit uh, about yourself.
1: All right. My name is Jennifer Caston. I am a practicing pathologist in Ohio. But before I went to medical school and before I became a pathologist, I actually trained as an infectious disease epidemiologist over in the UK. So I worked on epidemics out in the field, and I also did a year's worth of graduate study in the mathematical modeling of epidemics, uh, as well as a few years of basic science virology research. So I've been very interested in COVID from all the angles, from the virology angle, the epidemiology angle, as well as the clinical medicine and pathology side.
2: Dr. Parker? Great, and uh, I am not nearly as accomplished or have as many initials behind my name as Dr. Kasten, but uh, I actually, the medicine is a second career for me. I started off in the Navy. I actually flew for the Navy for 10 years, um, <clears throat> decided that I wanted to go to medical school and, and changed over uh, and, and ran a department at the Naval Hospital before uh, retiring, uh, went into private practice in emergency medicine. And I am in, uh, I, I do practice emergency medicine full-time right now. Um, I am also uh, involved very heavily with uh, the Virginia College of Emergency Physicians, um, uh, nationally with the American College of Emergency Physicians, Um, and I'm just kind of a a data nerd. (laughs) Um, I guess we all are, but, you know, I'm one of those people that really uh, works hard to understand all of the details, um, like many physicians, but uh, that's kind of what I do in my spare time, so I'm really boring, Um, but I read up a lot on this and try to understand it, Um, and I Uh, I kind of like the whole concept of a physician as a teacher, so that's why I have my Facebook blogs. I'm sure why Dr. Kasten has her Facebook blog, um, because there's so much information out there that's hard to digest, and uh, and this is the perfect opportunity to spread it out. And I guess the last thing about me is that I I love different opinions, but I'm passionate about um, making sure that the facts that form the foundation of those opinions are accurate. And once those Once that foundational fact basis is established, then have at it. Form your own opinions.
1: Yeah, I agree with that completely. That's what I say on my page all the time. Let's just establish the facts. You can use it to inform your own views and your own analyses, but at least we'll start from the same place.
0: And that is exactly what we're looking for here. And because I've had a lot of people respond when I have responded to, especially these two, to say, well, there is this in there. And... Um, exactly as, as both of you have said, there is some fact and probably likely some good opinion and even theory involved here. But in medicine, we don't work on just a soft theory or an opinion. The idea is somebody has an idea and can we then support that in terms of moving forward with an act, our actual plan? So let's start. The first one was the uh, video that came out, the California Urgent Care Physicians uh, the, in Bakersfield, California. Uh, that came out, and uh, uh, we're talking about COVID nineteen, and this one got a huge following. Now, of course, it got a lot of following because they're talking. They're talking from a physician standpoint, even putting themselves forward as emergency physicians. And stating things as absolute firm fact and the concern, and this was one of very few times that we've had joint statements from the American College of Emergency Physicians as well as AAEM uh, with regard to this. Uh, and the reason being, and people have actually responded, why choose that one as opposed to other uh, aspects of of stuff that's out there that may be false or misleading and the reason was because it was getting traction with the lay public enough that we were concerned that it could make people make decisions that could put themselves or their communities or even states when it comes to public policy at increased risk so dr parker did a fantastic breakdown of this in fact it was part of the breakdown that we used for the um, supplemental information for the um uh, for the statement that we made with ASEP and with AAM as as well. So, Dr. Parker, break down the Bakersfield uh, video for us.
2: Sure. So, you know, first of all, as we said before, uh, you know, these, these two doctors have opinions and they are using uh, data, and I'm going to use that term sort of loosely, um, to form the foundation of their opinions. And so, as I've said frequently, i don't necessarily disagree with many of their opinions. I actually you know personally agree with 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 you know a number of them um, but again, you have to use you know a factual basis so um you know I'm not going to go through the point by point because it's an hour long video <clears throat> the The primary problem with with the video is their use of statistics and so they they own urgent cares, and you know i I'm not I'm going to go so far as to say that that is their motivation. But as we all know, when you're evaluating any research, you have to first look at the motivation and conflicts of interest of the people that are putting the information out. So I think it's worth noting that they own urgent cares. They have not practiced in emergency departments in uh, at least eight to 10 years and their their business is hurting. But again, to be very clear, I'm not saying that that is their motivation, but I think it's the first point that you have to look at. Um, next is how they use their statistics. So they are testing lots of people at these urgent cares, um, most of them symptomatic. Um, They do say in some follow-up videos that they were testing asymptomatic people. Um, I can't imagine that that was a huge number of people because other physicians that work in that region and in California were saying that there were extreme shortages of test kits um, and that they were only able to test the people that were symptomatic. So uh, they may have been testing people that were asymptomatic, but I think most of those were, symptomatic with symptoms that could have been COVID. So, you don't have a random sample of people. If you were going to perform 6,000 tests on just random Californians in different regions, uh, walking down the street, uh, then you might get a better sample of what the prevalence is. But in this case, they were testing people that were seeking care, and there's a a zillion analogies out there, you know, for the public, uh, you know, to to, to use this. If you were going to say that there's you know 30 people in my ER and three of them are having heart attacks. You can't say that 10% of the population is, is having a heart attack right now because 10% of the patients in the ER are having a heart attack. So that's probably the easiest um, one to understand. So <clears throat> they take the prevalence based on their study, uh, or I'm sorry, based on their uh testing. They also look at the testing data that is done statewide, and then they extrapolate that to say that this is how many people have COVID in the state, um, either 6% based on their data or 12% based on the the data from California testing. So, but again, none of those samples were were random. So, you know, when you have a high pretest probability of having the disease, uh, you know, then the prevalence is going to be much higher. So that's okay. You know, so I, as I said, that, that's not a really valid way to look at the data, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one way and it's, you know, theoretically the highest uh, case scenario of how many people have a disease in the state. But then they go on and compare deaths and they do it in California and they do it in New York. The California one was actually, while not um, the best use of, of statistical analysis, theoretically possible, but the New York one was actually really where the problem was. They take the prevalence of the disease based on their tests. Um, they then calculate the death rates based on the number of deaths on that day and the theoretical number of people that have the disease in the state. So if you say we have X number of deaths today, but um, 12% of Californians have it, then the death rate is very, very low. So, you know, that, that's, that is one way of calculating it. It doesn't account for the fact that deaths lag tests by weeks. You know, as we know, these patients go into the ICU well, we, we test them, they're positive, most of them we send home, they come back three, five, seven days later, uh, they're worse, we hospitalize them. Most of them, uh, at least the ones that I'm taking care of, get put on a medical surgical floor, on, and then they get escalated to the ICU, maybe go on a vent or not, and then die. So that process takes several weeks. So the deaths are going to lag positive tests by, by several weeks. But uh, when, they go, when they move to New York, that's where their data becomes very problematic. They say at the time they make this video that there are 19,000 deaths in New York and they say there are 19 million people in New York. So that means that there's a 0.1% death rate, but that would assume that every single citizen of the state of New York has actually been infected with COVID. Well, Based on prevalence studies, it was about 14%, and that was antibody prevalence studies. So that's probably about the best number that they had at the time of the video. Um, the Bakersfield doctors, based on their uh, number crunching, there was 39% of tests that had been performed that were positive. So they said 39% of New Yorkers have had it, which again is, you know, you're not taking random samples. So even if you said there were 19,000 deaths You can only say it's out of 7.5 million people at most that their extrapolated uh, prevalence would be, which as we know, it wasn't 39%. It was closer to 14%, 3% in upstate New York, 21% in New York City. So they're selectively using statistics to make a point, but their statistical analysis is completely flawed, which uh, invalidates their argument essentially. Now, they could come out and they could say, as they've done in subsequent videos, and they could say, well, we just believe that the economic impacts are more harmful than the the medical reality on the ground. That is an opinion. That's uh, a a valid opinion that people are certainly entitled to hold. And we don't know that much about this disease. So they may very well be right. And I support people having that opinion. But if you're going to use and manipulate statistics to make that point, that's where the problem begins.
0: That is exactly, and I'm glad you wrapped with that. That was exactly what I was going to mention. And and, and what I've told folks when they responded to me is the opinion is fine. The opinion is valid. But in the video, especially that initial video, none of it was opinion. It was projected as medical scientific fact and thus should drive the entire policy of states in this country in general. And that's what I've said. If you come out and you say this is an opinion – these are theories, and then we dig into them and look at the data, break down the data, see if it passes muster from a scientific uh, standpoint, then we can start to work on our theories and, and move forward with it. But I think it was the approach and people using that as such that has been uh, difficult uh, difficult for uh, science and medicine to swallow. Dr. Kasten, any response to the Bakersfield video?
1: Well, I agree, of course, with Dr. Parker. Um, my analysis, too, turns on their statistics, and I like to say, you have to be right for the right reasons. And again, you can you can inform an opinion from data, but the data needs to be factually correct. So they, as Dr. Parker just outlined, they committed the classic sin of selection bias. Basically, that means their sample was not a random sample and any subsequent calculations they would do to extrapolate up to the entire population, both of California or the Central Valley, as well as the United States at large, we're just absolutely riddled with error, error that I think an intro statistics class should correct. Um, you, you know, People could say the ER example that Dr. Parker alluded to, three people in the ER out of 30 having a heart attack. You can take it away from medicine. I like to say, uh, let's say you go to a pharmacy and you observe 2000 people buying lipstick and 98% of them are women. And then you infer 98% of all people are women. That's ludicrous, right? Or you go to a kindergarten classroom and you say, wow, 15 out of the 16 people in this kindergarten classroom are under four feet tall. The other one being the teacher. Therefore, 15 out of 16 people at large are under four feet tall. You can't do that, right? You have to make sure that the sample from which you're extrapolating is actually representative and random of the population at large. Um, And then again, when it comes to opinion, uh, of course, we're all entitled to an opinion. It's a free society. Everyone has the unalienable right to express their views. But then you need to ask yourself, well, why do people need to call a press conference and get the amount of attention that they've had simply to express an opinion? The only reason they were able to garner that sort of spotlight is because, again, they were leaning into their authority as emergency physicians or as, in their words, experts on immunology and microbiology and statistics, um, presenting their opinions as though they were established scientific fact.
2: And, you know, people have asked why, like you said, why this particular video? And and Dr. Kassin, you, you hit right on it. It's, it's that they put themselves out there as emergency medicine experts, as, uh, as, as being experts in all of these things. And that's what got the attention of the American College of Emergency Physicians and the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. And like Dr. Stanton said, you know, you can barely get those two organizations to agree on anything. Whenever a joint statement is issued by the two of them, that's significant. Whenever a joint statement is issued within 24 hours, <laughs> that's unheard of. And and this is really what it comes down to is they put themselves out as emergency physicians that are experts in all of these fields. And that's really where the problem came from. You know, they talk about you know all the death certificates that they are signing and all the autopsies that they attend. And you know, I, I'm I just I just worked three shifts in the last you know three days in the in the hottest spot in in our state for for COVID. And you know, I mean. I don't know of any urgent care doctors that are signing death certificates or going to autopsies. I don't know of any emergency physicians that are going to autopsies. So, you know, that all those things are, are ludicrous. The
0: last uh, autopsy I attended was during a forensic rotation back in my second year of residency because I had some extra time uh, because I had done a year of surgery. So I didn't have to do my surgery residency that, that those rotations. So I went and i I enjoyed it, but it didn't involve COVID, and I don't do it now. Um, I, I prefer to avoid death as much as possible.
1: I am an autopsy pathologist, actually.
0: <laughs> right. so I can right.
1: assure you, I've never seen any urgent care doctors show up at an autopsy of mine. Um, and I can also, if you want, discuss some of that death certificate information, because that is a, a popular concern amongst the general public.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that is actually a perfect Uh, thing to go into. We didn't expect it as a topic, but I think it is a really good one, especially since we're focusing on the public and we have an actual uh, expert with uh, our pathologist uh, here with Dr. Kasten. I think that's a a great segue before we roll into uh, the pandemic.
2: Well, and I think it's good to have, we have a perspective of a pathologist who, like I always say, and you'll appreciate this, the only doctors that make, that actually make diagnoses are pathologists. You know, the rest of us are just guessing um, but you know I, I you know as a, we have a practicing clinician that fills out death certificates, and we have a pathologist that fills out death certificates. So we really have the two sides of people that that fill out death certificates here, and that's that was actually the topic of my post, you know this morning um, that 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 is just getting out there, so it's an important topic.
1: It is. so uh, well, we can start with two angles, two things that the public is concerned about, as well as things that were mentioned in the Bakersfield Dynamic duo's video. And the first is that um, deaths, which are actually due to other causes are being incorrectly attributed to COVID, either out of uh, some sort of malicious intent or just out of ignorance. And I think people don't quite understand how a death certificate works and the fact that you can have a top line (laughs) cause of death and then contributing causes of death. It is completely valid for COVID to put such physiologic stress on your system that if you have a pre-existing condition, for example, a weakened heart due to ischemic heart disease, you simply can't compensate. So a person who has a perfectly functional heart can beat off COVID, but a person who already has bad coronary artery disease cannot. So in that case, if COVID, the stress of it, triggers a fatal heart attack or acute heart failure, you can fill out a death certificate where the top line is acute myocardial infarction or acute cardiac failure, Secondary to acute respiratory failure, secondary to COVID-19. That is completely valid. And it's not just a piece of paper. It's physiologically valid. It's how medicine works and it's how the body works. And then the second concern that people have is that uh, there seems to be two separate sets of numbers at the same time, and that's caused some alarm. And there's a very good reason for that. That is, the United States actually has two separate tracking systems, one of which is formal and involves the long-form death certificates, and the other of which is much more immediate. The long-form death certificates go to the National Vital Statistics System, which is maintained by the CDC, and it takes a very long time. Um, It takes, on average, between one and eight weeks, depending on where you live, And only 84% of the deaths in the United States are entered into the system within three months after the person dies. 80% of them can be kind of auto-entered, but 20% of the 2.7 million deaths in the United States require an actual human being to hand code and enter it into the system. So that's very laborious. It's very labor-intensive and time-intensive. And months is something we do not have when we're trying to get numbers for an epidemic. So fortunately, we have an entirely separate system which is based on uh, surveillance for infectious diseases of public interest. That is an immediate system. That is the one into which all the state health departments report, and the New York City Health Department reports. That's tabulated in real time. So whenever people look at the public and they look at, for example, the Johns Hopkins COVID deaths counter or the Worldometers COVID deaths counter, the reason that number is higher than that CDC number is because, again, CDC just lags from that long form. Uh, death certificate tabulation. And then the more immediate ones, where you just have a single top-line cause of death, which is COVID-19, that goes into the immediate system. So that's why, for example, last week, one number was about 37,000 deaths, and the other number was about 68,000 deaths. And people said, hang on, what's happening? That's what's happening.
2: I agree completely. And in fact, they just issued a new provisional death uh, table. They just updated their site. And so what I did is I posted um, you know, last week's chart and this week's chart. And so you can see how deaths from even March 28th, April 4th, April 11th, those numbers are are going up. And that, as Dr. Kasten says, is uh, because the CDC is receiving those death certificates. Um, you know, as I was actually writing up a previous post on this, that morning I had just signed uh, two death certificates on our electronic um, uh, death reporting system. That were from deaths that happened two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So I was just receiving the death certificates through our electronic system, signing them and sending them back two weeks after the deaths happened. So you know those deaths are just now being reported um, up to the state, and you know probably haven't made it to the CDC yet because they were electronically. They they may have, but as as you said, um, all of the COVID deaths are actually being manually entered, even if they are uh, uh, electronically assigned. They're being manually entered because they want to make sure that you know their numbers are as accurate as possible. So, yeah. so that's a classic example of of the lag. And part of that lag is because, at least in our area, the nursing homes are a little overwhelmed. And so, their death certificates normally take three to five days to get to me, and uh, but they're taking about ten days to two weeks to get to me to sign right now. And so, that's that's a that's a that's a real world example of that lag. Based on the new chart, so the the, the number of deaths is up into the mid forties, and Uh, I think, you know, where the provisional death chart is important is looking at the excess deaths. A lot of people have said, well, you know, people are reporting COVID deaths um, that were actually other things. You know, anybody who dies of pneumonia is a COVID death. Anybody who has a heart attack is a COVID death. And so the key is to look at the excess deaths and then to break those down into the different categories. And I think that this chart does a nice job of that. It's a little bit, it's a lot to digest when you first look at it. So when you break it down, you know, starting March 28th, you begin to see excess deaths. So March 28th, there's 104%. uh, April 4th, 117%. April 18th, um, I'm sorry, April 11th, 126%. So the excess deaths start at 2,000, 9,000, go up to 14, 15,000. And then um, as you get to April 25th and May 2nd, uh, those numbers drop dramatically because they haven't received those death certificates yet. So you look at those excess deaths, but then they break the categories down. There's deaths due to COVID, deaths due to pneumonia, deaths due to flu, deaths due to uh, listing any one of those three. And so you can break it out. So if you have deaths due to COVID, pneumonia, and influenza, and that's one number, then you take out the deaths due to influenza, the deaths that list, list influenza and the deaths that list, list COVID. Now what you have are pneumonia deaths that aren't related to flu. Or, um, or, or, or COVID. So that gives you a number and, and basically it's, it's running right about 4,000 pneumonia deaths uh, each week that aren't attributed to COVID or aren't attributed to pneumonia. Well, when you look back at January and February before COVID really took off, there were roughly 4,000 pneumonia deaths every week that weren't attributed to flu or COVID. So those numbers are relatively consistent which to me is a good strong indicator that there is not a lot of overcoding and overdiagnosis of COVID on these deaths. The number of non COVID, non influenza deaths is remaining relatively constant even through this pandemic. And that's how you can use those charts to distill that information out.
1: Yeah. And I, I also just want to add that excess mortality indicator is a really important one Um, because different things will be packed into it. It'll be deaths that are attributable straight to COVID for people that were infected with COVID and died of it. But there's also going to be deaths from people who are, for example, too frightened to come into an emergency room, people who didn't get their cancer screening on time and developed an advanced cancer, et cetera. There's excess mortality packed into COVID that has nothing to do with actually being infected by the virus.
2: And and the other thing about the
1: excess... Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: No, you finish your point. I'm Sorry.
1: I was going to say, the other thing about the excess mortality is it, it's very patchy, as you would expect. It's very heterogeneous, given how heterogeneous the epidemic is in the United States. So in, in New York City itself, in the five boroughs of, the New, York, of, of New York City, um, the excess mortality rate was 325% for some of those weeks, which is not going to be true in North Dakota, for example. Uh, the other thing is... Um, as you all well know, testing for COVID has been in a very short supply in a lot of places, particularly earlier in the epidemic, which is why we have two separate ICD-10 codes for COVID. One of them is UO 7.1, which is COVID-19 virus identified. The other one is UO 7.2, COVID-19 virus not identified. And that latter one has also given the public some alarm because they feel, again, perhaps that's being inflated but I just want to point out to people, unless you were an NBA star or like an Instagram influencer, someone just critical to the running of the country, right? You probably didn't get a test every Tuesday if you wanted one. So just keep that in mind. If, if physicians are using their clinical judgment and they're saying, well, this really looks like COVID, it's presenting with all the classic features. Unfortunately, I just couldn't get my hands on a test. And also in places where testing is still rationed, rightfully so, Tests are being given to those who are still alive, not those who've already died, which makes good sense, right? So even if someone is strongly suspected to have died of COVID, people aren't rationing those very critical, precious tests on someone who's died.
2: And I, I agree completely. You know, from a clinician standpoint, and, and Dr. Stanton, you, you I mean, you can address this too. These patients are very characteristic. Now, I mean, there's a lot of patients that we don't know and we say, well, maybe it could be or maybe, it, maybe it's not. But a lot of these patients have a very characteristic appearance. I tell people I would never be comfortable clinically calling a respiratory failure death influenza without a confirmatory test because there's nothing unique about it, okay? But the, 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 the X-ray, the CT scan appearance, um, the, the profound hypoxia, uh, you know, the ARDS, you know, the other characteristics that these patients have is critical. And, you know, there's also just the, uh, the, the community epidemiology and demographics. So example, one of the places that I work, there are a lot of chicken plants, and it is going through the chicken plants like wildfire. So if you have someone that comes in from the chicken plant with a multifocal bilateral pneumonia, hypoxic, who develops ARDS, who's otherwise healthy and has no reason to develop, to develop that, and their, COVID, their initial COVID test is negative and then they die... You know that that's COVID. I mean, it 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 just it almost can't be anything else. You know, now it's possible that one out of ten or one out of twenty of those maybe aren't, um, and so there maybe is a little bit of error in there. But it's it's not some big overwhelming, uh, you know, conspiracy to hide this. So I, I think that's important. And and your point about the excess deaths was so important. And it's going to be interesting to see that all teased out. I normally about once a week will get a call from EMS on the field to a terminator resuscitation, um, and we're getting them every one to two night. you know, I mean, one or two every night right now. Now, some of those are potentially COVID, and you hear them say, well, this person's been sick for a week, and now they, now they've just suddenly died, but I think some of them are um, people that are, uh, you know, not seeking, not seeking care, and that data will be in the excess data provisional death chart of the CDC also, because there are excess deaths But some of those excess deaths are not attributable to COVID. And so that that will be able to be teased out. It's just going to take a while.
1: And I think another important thing for the public to know is when you're looking at a number and you're trying to decide, is it biased one way or the other? Is it biased to be too high or is it biased to be too low? You should think about the factors that can make it too low or too high. So in the example Dr. Parker gave, uh, maybe somebody inadvertently, not maliciously, not trying to hoodwink anybody, codes of death as COVID when it actually wasn't. But will that be washed out by people who miss deaths entirely or feel too cautious and say, well, I don't know, there wasn't a test, so I'm just going to attribute it to pneumonia instead, right? Those two on a population level are going to balance each other out. So there's not going to be a systemic bias to make it too high or, or maybe even to make it too low. But honestly, if there is a systemic bias, it's probably on the too low side deaths are probably undercounted in this country by a factor of at least 10%. And we know that from, again, the the stuff I was just saying about pneumonias and mysterious respiratory infections that don't have confirmatory testing, so people are reluctant to attribute it without just definitive proof. And we also know it by the excess mortality, people dying at home, et cetera, significantly elevated over baseline. So we, we feel fairly confident that we're missing a decent number of COVID deaths, not not half of them or anything like that, but probably about
2: 10%. I'm super jealous of pathologists, because when you guys put things down on a death certificate, you know what it was. You know, we're guessing, we hate it, right? And so you you hit the nail on the head as clinicians, we we um underreport because everybody's so scared to put something down that might be inaccurate. And so there's no question that that I, I think more people are not putting COVID in deaths that are probably COVID because they're too scared to call it COVID without a confirmatory test than the other way around.
1: Yeah, concur.
0: I actually want to congratulate uh, Dr. Kasten because hoodwinked was the word of the day. Um, So congratulations for pulling that into the podcast. Uh, Probably a a much later than expected freeze, which is going to happen uh, apparently tonight after it stops raining in our part of the country. And I just wanted to bring in a couple of things. Is it one... I think a lot of the public wants to see death and doesn't want to see death, but wants to consider death as black and white as a true and false answer. This caused it, but death rarely happens in a vacuum. There's always, there's in most cases, other than getting hit by a bus, there's huge, us, there's usually contributing factors. And it's, it's a combination that brings about the demise and not necessarily one single focal data point that says this is the cause. And so just because, and what we're seeing a lot of is the strokes and the heart attacks. Likely is being contributed by COVID. When we can find the COVID in there, the findings, as Dr. Parker mentioned, the, early, the the mild the milder presentations of COVID, they can be all over the place. But the really sick versions of COVID, they are pretty clear, especially on imaging studies of exactly what they look like, what they act like, and what they are. And,
1: and the under under, the, under see, the microscope
2: too. <laughs>
0: Yes. Yeah. And if I ever have to get a microscope out again, I'll probably quit medicine. But
2: uh, they don't trust the, us with microscopes well, anymore, Ryan. You they, know, they took them. They took <laughs> them away from us. Yeah.
1: Well, it's the we, same we with us. It's the same with
2: right
0: us. In microscopes. Anyway. <laughs> well, we we ended up cutting ourselves on the slides and doing all kinds of silliness. And the other thing that we always hear about is the potential pressure to place COVID as a diagnosis, or that we are compensated financially to put COVID as a diagnosis, and that is not the case. One, and I'll ask you guys, you can respond. I have not seen one person encourage me. In fact, it's almost a, oh my gosh, they got COVID? Crap. Um, So no encouragement whatsoever to put COVID as a diagnosis, and there's absolutely, just like with the drug industry, no financial benefit that has come to a physician or anything else for diagnosing COVID. In fact, for us, we're actually losing... Um, potential compensation if we place COVID because of the way that the current laws and regulations and billing are happening right now. Have you guys, maybe it's just me in Kentucky, I'm just in central Kentucky, I'm being sheltered and not being pressured to do such dastardly things, but are you seeing or heard of any such thing with any factual uh, aspect of things?
1: Absolutely not. Um, but it's it's more important than just anecdotes, than just the three of us saying, no, nah, we've never seen it. And that's, that's worth something, but it's not worth that much, right? Um, I think we should go back a little bit and look at the foundation for some of this misinformation. So you'll probably see passed around on the internet that A, you get an extra $13,000 for diagnosing COVID and B, hospitals get $39,000 for putting someone on a ventilator. Have you seen these? Yes, everyone's seen these memes and such. Oh, yeah. Yes, so where does that come from? Where does it come from? Because as you said, Dr. Stanton, Dr. Parker, it certainly isn't being deposited into my bank account. So it it comes from two two sources. The first is CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who set reimbursement fees and and schedules for different diagnoses and diagnosis-related groups in the United States. So the 2017 fee schedule, 2017, you know, three years pre-COVID, set uh, a 96-hour mechanical ventilation ICU stay reimbursement rate at about $39,000, and it set reimbursement for complicated influenza pneumonia at $13,000, reimbursed to the hospital. And again, this isn't a, a bonus, this isn't a finder's fee, this is reimbursement for the care which was provided. And ICU care is fancy, it involves fancy stuff, it involves expensive equipment and lots of expertise from lots of people taking care of patients. It costs money to provide ICU care, this is reimbursement for services rendered, not a windfall. And again, that's from 2017. So COVID is just tacked onto that, which is quite reasonable. The second thing is that the CARES Act, which is our big trillion dollar stimulus bill that was passed in April, the text of the CARES Act gives a 20% over CMS reimbursement to hospitals and for taking care of COVID patients. Why is that? It's because patients without insurance and all the other people who might have trouble paying their bills, we want to make sure in a public health emergency that they're being looked after, they're being cared for. We've always, of course, taken care of people without insurance that's built into Impala and everything else. But just to make sure, especially since hospitals are hemorrhaging money because they've closed so much of their elective care, they're laying off staff, et cetera. We want to make sure that we remain open. We're able to take care of everyone in the United States, regardless of their ability to pay which is a very, in my opinion, laudable and wonderful thing to do, right? So that's why there's this extra twenty percent bonus.
2: I, I agree. and and you know my like I said, my my side job with the Virginia College of Emergency Physicians is all related to reimbursement issues and you know the out of network billing, surprise billing, Medicaid um, adjustments. And if there's one thing the government wants to do when it comes to uh, uh, this type of reimbursement is simplified as much as possible, and because they want to be able to predict from a budgetary standpoint, what the impact is going to be. And, and you, hit, you hit the nail on the head. Really, these numbers are just, they're just giving a fixed amount that approximates what the reimbursements would be to avoid having 50,000 different variables that would normally go into this. Um, and and it, just, it just gives a predictable amount. So that's, yeah. that's all this is. And, you know, and like I said, we're not, we're not receiving anything. We're actually just kind of you know, all hoping to keep our jobs.
1: Let me, let me ask you, um, Dr. Stanton, Dr. Parker, do you think the federal government is keen on fraud?
2: <laughs> I addressed that in one of my posts recently too, yeah. So, um, you, you know, there, there might be things that you can get away with in medicine, but but Medicare fraud is, uh, you, you don't go there because that is a quick way to end your career, um, end your hospital's uh, primary source of reimbursement, etc., So if anything, you know, now, I mean, there's, there are, in every one of these reimbursement issues inside of COVID, outside of COVID, there are bad actors out there. There There's no question. And there's always the sensational cases that make it into the media that make it sound like it's potentially a widespread problem. It's not. There are millions of doctors, tens of thousands of hospitals across the country. And um, the majority, you know, yes, they are trying to be profitable. But the majority of them are doing it within the rules because nobody wants to go afoul. You don't want to go afoul of Imtala. You don't want to go afoul of CMS uh, reimbursement issues.
0: What happens with the government is they, when they come in in certain situations like this, and why you could kind of hear the trepidation of that sort of thing is the government then one asks for their money back and then finds you on top of that. And so, um, so as long as in federal prison, um, and and probably not the good good wing of it.
2: No. And when it, when it comes to CMS violations, if they come in and they investigate one and they find one, they are then allowed to go back and pull charts for six months, a year. They then have carte blanche to now go back and look to see if it's a systemic problem or it's an isolated mm-hmm. case. So it's not just the one case. If you're caught cheating these rules I mean, you really have to open all of your books over the years and show them every little detail because they want to see if it's a systemic problem. Nobody wants that.
0: And then they ban you from being able to bill in the future, so basically shutting down your practice, especially emergency medicine. If you're an emergency physician and you can't bill, um, the federal payers, you're done. You're, you're you're not hired whatsoever. And so everybody listening, that what you just heard was called a softball. I pitched up a little softball um, in terms of my own opinion, knowing that I've got two people who can break down statistics and everything else. Now, I had no idea Dr. Kasten had the exact facts on the money uh, that was associated, but that was called a softball and pitching up there. But we do need to move on because we have the whole other video yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to loft it up there and let you take a swing and knock it out of the park. And so Dr. Caston actually did a fantastic breakdown of pandemic, And I, um, I got this one, started getting this one a number of days ago and probably had 10 or 15 within the morning. I woke up, um, after working an evening shift, woke up in the morning and there was just like 10 or 15, Ryan, what do you think Ryan are tagging me in this? And I told you know, whatever it was. And, um, and thankfully um, on one of the sites, Dr. Kasten had already done a breakdown of this thing. And so I honestly started, I reached out to her and said, Hey, can I use your information? said, of course, it, you know, just where, where it's coming from. And honestly, instead of just crediting her, I just actually shared her blog post, um, just to push everybody to the site in general. And so, uh, Dr. Kasten, let's get a breakdown of Plandemic. Now for you folks that don't know, Plandemic, um, is this conspiracy, uh, video, um, this comes out that really breaks down and the key to a lot of these videos is you have a few facts and truths and then you build a story or a narrative from there and so you can latch on to these facts and truths and use that as a as reason to carry forward or to share but not understanding that in totality that it is potentially very dangerous so break down Pandemic for us.
1: Plandemic is a we can call it a documentary it might be a mockumentary um, put on on the behest of a woman named Judy Mikevitz. And she, most of the video relates to her personal beliefs and her political beliefs, which are things that I try not to touch in my my blog in particular. Because again, I feel everyone's beliefs are their own. They're also not falsifiable. They're not evidentiary. If you say, I believe that I had a dream last night about a red balloon, I can't prove that or disprove that. I just, you you had a dream last night about a red balloon, that's very nice, right? So I, I focus mostly on the virology and the, the science and the epidemiology of her claims. So understanding her background is very relevant to understanding the context of this video. She uh, is a virologist. She has a PhD in molecular biology and virology. She worked as a staff scientist for a while at the National Cancer Institute she did work on retroviruses, and so was working in the 80s and 90s, uh, at the height of the HIV epidemic when a lot of new discoveries were coming out. Um, she, she was never a principal investigator, but she had, like I said, a staff scientist and some postdoc positions. Perfectly legitimate, perfectly credible person. Um, Eventually, she left the National Cancer Institute, went to California, was tending bar, and found a job running a research wing for a foundation dedicated to chronic fatigue syndrome. She hypothesized that a harmless mouse retrovirus was actually responsible for chronic fatigue syndrome, and she found 20 samples of blood from chronic fatigue syndrome patients, and lo and behold, identified this mouse virus in all 20. This was a bombshell discovery. It was published in Science, the journal Science, which is one of the more illustrious high impact factor journals that we have. She was the subject of a lot of positive media attention and it seemed like a career making discovery. So naturally there was a huge amount of excitement. Everyone said, this is amazing, a viral cause of a chronic illness. This is, wow, this is a paradigm shift. So everyone started looking for the virus themselves. They believed her completely. They said, let's look, let's look, let's look. And nobody found it. Nobody found it anywhere. And so they said, hang on a second, can we see your samples? And a a few people did an independent review of her research samples and found that they'd been tampered with. That in fact, the mouse retroviral uh, gene was actually tied up with a bacterial plasmid which is evidence that it had been dropped in, that it had been engineered in, that she basically had spiked the punch, spiked her samples. So this is overt scientific fraud. And the papers were all retracted. She was fired, and she kind of left in disgrace. On the way out, she managed to steal some of the laboratory property, including the cell lines that she'd done all this work in, as well as the lab notebooks, which if anybody's worked in a laboratory, you know that those lab notebooks are absolutely precious and irreplaceable. They're the only record of years and years and years worth of work. Um, So she was charged with theft um, and arrested and and jailed. So that's the story. Now her version of the story is quite different and she's she's sort of turned it into um, a personal vendetta against Tony Fauci, which long predates COVID. But again, that's the sort of thing that those of us on the outside simply can't address. She says that she and Tony Fauci had a conversation. Who are we to say that that occurred or didn't occur? You know, we weren't there. It's not falsifiable. So we don't discuss that sort of thing. At least I don't, not on my blog. But we can discuss her virology claims and her epidemiology claims, especially the ones that touch on public health and could potentially be dangerous to the public, because that's what we really care about. It's not so much that there's this voice howling in the wind we want to know if she's saying something, if people listen to her, will it potentially harm them? So one of her claims is that wearing a mask in public causes a potentially lethal carbon dioxide poison. That people wear a mask and they rebreathe their own carbon dioxide, eventually become hypercapnic and show all the features of hypercapnia and can die. Well, that has got a lot of traction with the public and it's alarmed people to a great degree. So you simply say, no, that's, that's simply not true, that you can inhale in through a mask and you can exhale through a mask. A mask is not a steel vault. It doesn't clap down over your mouth and nose. You can breathe quite freely. And the second claim she makes about masks are that you're constantly reinfecting yourself with virus. If you actually have a virus, you breathe out, you breathe in. The virus somehow gets activated by being out in the environment and it becomes like a super virus. So when you breathe it back in, you're reinfecting yourself and you're making yourself sicker. All of that is just absolutely not true. The virus, when it leaves its host cell, risks falling apart and denaturing. It's a very precarious and dangerous trip for a virus if it leaves and comes back in. You cannot make yourself sicker by reinfecting yourself with virus you already have in your body. That is is not a concern. So I don't want the public to worry that wearing a mask could somehow harm them. Wearing a mask is the most effective and lowest burden way that we can reduce transmission on a mass scale. The second claim she makes is that COVID-19 is not caused by SARS-CoV-2. In fact, she says it's caused by the very same mouse retrovirus that she tried to pin on chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a passenger in influenza vaccines that were given in 2014. So as Carl Sagan likes to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. There's absolutely no proof of this whatsoever. She claims that because influenza vaccines are developed in mice, therefore we'll have mouse viruses in us. But influenza vaccines are grown in chicken embryos and and eggs. Uh, They're occasionally developed in the Vero E6 cells, which come from monkey kidneys. So if any of that were true at all, we would see potentially mouse or, or sorry, not mouse, but uh, chicken or monkey viruses in us. But we don't. There's absolutely no way for this mouse virus to be contaminated in vaccines. But even beyond that, again, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And she offers no evidence of this whatsoever. Absolutely none. There's no blood samples from which you've isolated this mouse virus. There's no vaccines from which you've isolated this mouse virus. It's just something she's saying.
2: So, no, no. I mean, you're you're doing a great job and, and you're much more of an expert on this than, than I am. I, I address some of the more editorial issues, if you will, with her um with our area without getting into you know whether it's opinion or not um but you know your your analysis was was spot on and you know anyone can go look at the studies that actually you know multi-center blinded studies that attempted to reproduce this and ultimately definitively proved that um you know that her samples were contaminated Um, whether they were contaminated accidentally or whether you know the the punch was spiked if you will um, you know, that, that is certainly open to debate, but I don't think there's any question that the samples were contaminated. So, you know, if you just, if you just Google it, a multi-center-blinded analysis indicates no association between chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, and either xenotropic murine leukemia virus-related virus or polytropic murine leukemia virus. So, everybody got that? That's, um <laughs> You have to remember that there will be a quiz later, but that's you know right. it's out that's, there.
1: That's her pet virus, everybody. In case you're curious, what Dr. Parker was just saying—that's that's the magic virus that she tries to pin every condition known to man on.
2: Right. That is the um, uh, so 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 you know all of that. All of those studies are out there. They're very easy to find. Um, there's actually in Smithsonian in 2013, and I posted this on my blog. Um, there's a very good recap, Smithsonian, Smithsonian Magazine, a very good recap that explains. Um, all of the refuting of those claims uh, point by point in layman's terms. So I encourage people to go look at that. When when the point of the pandemic video is that there's a big conspiracy out there for pharmaceuticals or vaccines, actually um, proving the negative would would not support that. So because if you show that there really is no uh, virus or retrovirus cause of this, which there may be, it's just that, that those re- that research didn't show it, disproving that would actually financially disincentivize any pharmaceuticals or vaccines. So um, it just, the the, the the claims that are being made aren't supported by what they say the goals are. Um, and then I think that there is an important point that I, I do wanna bring up um, because I, I've seen a lot of breakdowns of this. Dr. Cassens is probably one of the best, but a lot of people are, are addressing the claim that uh, when she says that there are no RNA um, vaccines, and I think people misunderstand. Um, they're really, the, the concept of an RNA vaccine is actually very, very new. And it is, it is novel vaccines against RNA viruses are not new. And so, um, so I, have seen people say frequently, well, she should be discredited because she says there's no RNA vaccines and that's actually not, not accurate. The RNA vaccine itself as a concept is a new concept that uses the actual RNA, um, but, you know, flu, I mean, there's, there's plenty of there's plenty of vaccines against RNA viruses, but they're not technically RNA vaccines. So that part is actually accurate. And um, I've had to correct that on a few people's pages.
0: You know, one of the key things and themes you're going to see, and we're going to roll into just kind of an overall theme. And I don't know if, Dr. Kastin, you have any closing thoughts on the video. But one thing that we but both videos we've talked about is that people are getting traction because of their um, their credentials so they have enough credentials that gives them um, gives them the image of facts and truth and scientific method but just because somebody has the letters after their name doesn't mean we shouldn't do the research and dig into stuff to understand if that is founded or not because there is some there is some um, Uh, potential as we've seen from these uh, things that um, just because you've got the degree doesn't necessarily make it a fact or make it a truth. And also with regard to what Dr. Parker meant, some of the biggest critics, I think hands down the biggest critics of the pharmaceutical industry is physicians uh, because we are trained and taught not to trust anything until there's evidence to prove it. And even now with a lot of things, um, some of the medications for the flu, um, some of those sorts of things, us digging into it and saying, wait a second, even the data that we have available is potentially significantly biased. Um, where's the rest of the data? And if we pull the rest of that data in, what does it show us? So I think some of the biggest critics of the pharmaceutical industry of distrust in terms of their findings and evidence is actually the uh, physician. So uh, let's uh, get a couple of closing uh, thoughts on, in terms of your take-home messages. Dr. Caston.
1: Well, I would say to the public, sometimes you're going to hear a message that you need to be skeptical, you need to investigate, you need to dig into the sources. And, and that's exhausting. That is, that, that is terrifying to feel that you need to independently verify very complicated technical information. Uh, you know, the three of us sitting here on this podcast all have many, many years of specific advanced study in these fields. But if you take us outside of our fields, I feel fairly confident. If you asked me to talk about flying a fighter jet, I think Dr. Parker would laugh at me pretty quickly. And so sometimes part of living in society is just leaning into trust. So if I look at the bridge across the river here, I trust that the civil engineer who built my bridge did their load calculations correctly. And whoever inspected the steel who went into that bridge, which went into that bridge, that was done correctly too. So the idea that you need to suddenly become an armchair expert and actually acquire the ability to independently verify or validate all of this, I actually don't agree with that. But what I would say to the public, if you're thinking about a source or you're thinking about an article and you're worried, is it accurate? Should I trust it or not? Think about it from four specific angles. The first is if the source is telling you that they have an exclusive, unique claim to the truth that nobody else knows, trust me, listen to me, all these other people have got it wrong, but only I know If there's a lot of ego that's bound up in that, if it's just listen to me, listen to me, 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 my name, me, the person, that's something you should be suspicious of because science and truth stand on their own. It's totally independent of who's saying it. Truth stands on its own. The second thing is look for emotional language. So if if there's an appeal to emotion, if it's trying to make you angry, if it's trying to make you fearful, if there's any kind of emotional wording in the source itself, like, doctors don't want you to know this, or I bet you won't be brave enough to pass this on. You should be suspicious of that. Um, The third is do look at credentials because there is a little bit of hoodwinking going on here. Um, I reviewed recently a guy who was trying to say that uh, COVID-19, the virus had been engineered in a laboratory and he goes on social media with a hat saying Harvard and puts PhD after his name And you find out that actually his PhD is in business from an online university and he was a student at the open source Harvard Extension School. So be careful, do look into credentials. And thirdly, this is going to sound really simplistic, but truly follow the money. If someone is trying to sell you something or basically saying that this claim to truth is in a closed system, where you have to buy their books or subscribe to their blog or pay to see their movie or whatever to get more information, you should be very suspicious of that because science belongs to the public. It belongs to the world. It is open and truth, again, stands on its own. So then you have to say to yourself, well, why would somebody make it all up? Why would they spread misinformation? Um, I think, again, there's four reasons. The first is just out of self interest. They want their name out there. They want the attention. They want the bona fides, whatever it is. The second is, Possible true malicious intent, where they really do intend to sow disinformation, to sow fear and chaos. The third is financial gain. Always look out for that. And the fourth is that it could just be an honest mistake. They really believed what they were saying, and they really thought it was going to be helpful. It just happened to not be true.
2: So I agree. And, And you know what we have right now is a lot of very smart people um, uh, maybe even the three of us might be, might be included in that group, but there's a lot of very smart people, not in medicine who have a lot of time on their hands and have access to the collective knowledge of everything in the world right now. And so, uh, you know, that's a dangerous combination because, you know, people are scared. People are looking for information. People want explanations. They want things that are going to give them hope. And then they have their biases, which influence all of that. So, you know, that's why we're seeing such a big push on all these, you know, the conspiracies and these alternative theories and stuff right now, because people people are trying to find these explanations and they catch on to things. And, you know, I, there, there was a thing that came out a couple of weeks ago about the death of experts. And it was it's, it's actually been an ongoing thing. And, you know, I thought it was very good when I read it. Uh, And then, you know, of course, the Bakersfield docs posted their video like a day or two after I posted it. And I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, because really what we have are we have experts. But as you said, we have all these sort of false experts and it becomes very exhausting for the public to know who to believe and who not to believe. And when people in our own profession are um, putting out false and inaccurate information, it makes it very hard for anybody to trust anything. But, you know, one of the, the examples I use is, you know, in the Navy, <clears throat> there, there's all these conspiracy theories about the military also. And, you know, you remember how there was the talk about the, the TWA jet that supposedly got shot down by an accidental missile shot from a Navy ship sitting off the coast of New York. So, you know, you have, you have about 500 people on that ship. And, you know, if you've ever been in the Navy or the military, you know, you can't keep a secret of who's dating who or, you know, who's doing what for five minutes on a ship. You know, I mean, there's, there, there are no secrets. Nobody can keep their mouth closed. If anything's going on, they always have to turn off email and phone and any access to the outside world. So I said the idea that a ship would shoot down an airliner and 500 people would all be complicit in it is is unfathomable. So the fact with all these conspiracy theories that hundreds of thousands to millions of doctors and researchers and hospital administrators are and are all complicit in this big conspiracy to try to fool the public. For financial gain um, just simply isn't true. And, you know, doctors are terrible with money and terrible with, with, with business. So, you know, we don't know the first thing about how to make money. We just, we just screw it up every time we try to. So the fact that we're manipulating, you know, the world to, to, for everybody to become financially, you know, financially benefit from this is, it's just silly. So, but I, I, I get the fear. I, I understand people want answers Um, and, and, and it's, it's good to look, for answers, and it's good to seek out other sources and think outside the box, but it has to be grounded in factual data. It has to be grounded in solid statistics, numbers, um, evidence-based research, et cetera, and, and you know, and then from there, have at it.
1: Yeah, and I'd like to Thanks. add to you, um, if, we're, if we're going to have an audience for doctors, doctors, as you've noted, we are all getting flooded with these requests from people that we know to evaluate these claims. And, and both Dr. Parker and I are trying to put some information out that people can latch onto as sort of a rebuttal. So I would like to give some advice to doctors now about how to work with the public on this and how to counter these claims. And the, the first one is probably seems very obvious, but actually I think it's probably the one that's least followed, which is have some respect for the people you're trying to reach. It sounds, again, very obvious, but do you actually care about reaching them? Do you actually care about assuaging their worries and convincing them? Or are you just trying to have basically a bully pulpit in an echo chamber? I can tell you, I bet Dr. Parker feels similarly. Sometimes when I see my my posts shared, people will put a tagline on the top that'll say something like, for the morons. That doesn't work. (laughs) That doesn't reach people. So again, if you're trying to get clapped for and have everyone tell you right on, dude, you got it right, well, that you'll achieve that goal, but you're not gonna reach anybody. And then the second thing I like to say is, uh, make sure you're only responding to one claim at a time, the claim that's actually in front of you, and don't speculate on somebody's motives. Do not commit the logical fallacy of an ad hominem attack. So for example, if someone puts out something that says, COVID was created in a lab. The fact that they also sell essential oils is not relevant to that claim. Don't go there. Just talk about what's put out there. Don't say, oh, you can't believe them because they're an anti-vaxxer or whatever else. That's not relevant. That's not the claim. The claim is a self-contained system, and just focus on that. I call this the purple shirt analogy because it's just as relevant uh, if they're wearing a purple shirt versus a red shirt to the truth of that claim. An anti-vaxxer can tell you the sky is blue and they will be correct. Claims are independent of each other. So don't, don't get messed up in the weeds about other things that people might or might not believe. Just talk about what's in front of you. And then the last thing is if you possibly can, do try to offer some sources, some objective peer-reviewed sources, because usually a counter will be, oh, well, that's just your opinion. Well, no, it's not actually. It's not just my opinion. Here's, here's the reason why it's it transcends opinion and really goes over into the realm of fact.
0: And that's actually uh, to wrap up what um, I've told um, folks, because you've actually, Dr. Kasten, pointed out a couple of issues that, that I've had where I get a little bit emotional on responding to a lot of these things, and I'll tell people to be skeptical uh, with the whole Dr. Ken Milne approach to things, but agree that, that as a public or if you don't have the skills or the expertise to do that, Tru- find trusted sources um, such as Dr. Katz and Dr. Parker. That's exactly what I did with these particular. Is I cannot break these things down as well as they have, so I leaned on their expertise to break these down. And that expertise is out there. And I've also posted a couple of tips for the public to for things to look for uh, in terms of um, uh, things that that may raise your index of suspicion with regard to a text. I mean, a, a post. First, if a word is misspelled. That would otherwise relatively be easy, like the one post from a week and a half ago where they misspelled Kroger. Um, Kroger is a pretty easy company, and actually Dr. Kasten, with the home of Kroger right there in Cincinnati, knows uh, knows Kroger's not the hardest word to spell. If a story or headline goes wildly against overall understanding or consensus of the current situation, again, talking about what Dr. Uh, Parker said on this, is we're not all... The chances of getting everybody on the same page in a conspiracy is very unlikely. If the news source is a station or outlet that doesn't actually exist, I do this all the time, actually look up the news station that's quoted, it's in the corner. A lot of times these are actually just infomercials and they're just a made up station. So, especially if it plays like an infomercial where the reporter is just kind of almost kind of like what I'm doing here is where we're lofting up softballs for the person to advance their sales pitch Um, the story seems to be too good or too bad to be true you learn this as a kid Uh, things are rarely too good to be if it seems too good to be true it likely is any overly emotional or overly charged headline an example it was the most incredible amazing whatever it is you won't believe what happens next click here um that's another one if the video or picture is super sensational confirm that it's actually accurate and current we've seen several things and mentions of, of videos and pictures that have been reused i actually did this with a tornado that passed through our region here and passed a picture along that somebody had posted That said here's the image and i was like wow that's incredible well actually it was an old picture from from kansas from like 2006. and then finally if anyone or anything says watch this now before it gets deleted That is a draw, that is a hook, that is something to pull you in, to get you engaged, to think that you need to see something. Uh, because it's so scandalous that the machine or the deep state is going to pull that down. And those are some things to um, look for. And I want to I thank uh, Dr. Jennifer Caston, Dr. Todd Parker for jumping on here. I want to make sure that they get their information out there because they are a fantastic source for you moving forward. Dr. Caston, how can folks get in touch uh, with you in terms of your blog and other sources for information?
1: Well, thanks for that. If anybody would like to, I do have a public Facebook page. So it's simply my name with my credentials Jennifer Kasten, K A S T E N M D M S C M S C.
0: And then Dr. Parker?
2: I have a public Facebook page also. It's just called the Emergency Doc, very simple. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, and all these issues are, are, are addressed on there. So um, you know, welcome. I, I welcome the conversation. Um, and, you know, I'm. uh, I hope you engage because that's the way we all get smarter on this.
0: And I think one thing that we're learning is with the COVID-19 virus is that even as healthcare professionals, three physicians on this um, interview right here, we are all learning as we go. We are all digging into the data, trying to uh, really, for the most part, read the tea leaves to kind of see what this has. But I don't think anybody has the answers and anybody who claims to have all the answers for COVID is something that you should be incredibly incredibly suspicious because none of us have the answers. It has, fooled, it has proved us all of us wrong about some things, if not a number of things, um, and then there's some things that we've gotten right. But um, we're learning about this as we move forward. We won't actually have the answers until it's all said and done. So really at this point, we're using science, the evidence that's available, our experiences to kind of drive that conversation. And we're not all going to get it exactly right, but at the same time, We have to be able to trust the sources, and we want to make sure that the information out there is as founded and as likely leaning on the truth as possible uh, with the uh, available evidence. And um, so I want to thank Dr. Kast and and Dr. Parker, both incredible resources. Thank you for allowing me to use your information um, with regard to these things, because you definitely both break it down much better than I can do it myself and uh, great resources. I encourage everybody listening out there to lean on you guys for information as we move forward. And as for me, you can contact me, your youreverydaymedicine@gmail.com, at gmail.com, your everydaymedicine at gmail.com, or at everydaymed on Twitter. We also have our ASEP frontline page. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton. And this has been some ASEP frontline.